Today is Saturday, September 10th, 2022. Do you suffer from gear acquisition syndrome? I know I do. Buckle your seatbelts and welcome to this edition of the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with Pete Williams. A fun and pithy celebration of the electric guitar, guitarists, related gear, and industry news from a seasoned guitar pro. Get your daily dose of all things guitar from an industry insider with over 20 years in the proverbial trenches. Be regaled with sordid tales of guitar and guitar news, amps, effects, artists, lutiers, and the interesting people that make up this wacky machine. So wind down with us as we cap each week off with a fresh out-of-the-oven episode. Who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll laugh. Maybe you'll cry. You might even learn something. Yeah, maybe you won't. But one thing's for sure. You'll be entertained. So hang with us for a bit. And thank you for joining us on the Electric Guitar Lives Podcast. Now here's your host, Pete Pete Williams. Hello, hello. It's the weekend. All right. Saturday, uh, September 10th. Hey, thanks for tuning in again to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. We're going to go ahead and jump right into it. But before we start, how are you doing? Did you have a good week? Have you practiced at all this week with your guitar? I know I'm terrible about it. One of the uh, books that I really like uh, that's been helping me get my picking hand and my fretting hand working together well um, is a book by or from John Petrucci um, called Rock Discipline. And if you haven't checked this book out, you can get on Amazon and order it. Uh, there's some amazing exercises and he that he uses and that ha- he has used for warm-ups um, and for um, developing. Um, uh, you, you know, your hands, your playing hand and your fretting hand, uh, uh, getting it to work together. And it's a very, I really like his approach and I felt like it's, uh, it's helped me out with my picking and my playing. Um, but it, you know, if you aren't in the habit of practicing and are looking to pick up a decent book, um, you know, to help you along that path, that's a good one to check out. According to an article, recent article on Guitar World, uh, there's a new 75 minute film that explores uh, the legendary Steve Vai's early career uh, from his first guitar and meeting Joe Satriani to recording some of his most memorable tracks. Uh, This new 75-minute documentary charting the first three decades of Steve Vai's life has been released in its entirety by the Tapes Archive. Pretty cool. Titled Steve Vai, His First 30 Years, The extended film explores just about every influential life event the electric guitar legend experienced between 1960 and 1990 and traces his rise from falling in love with the instrument to creating the Ibanez gem and releasing his studio, excuse me, a second studio album, Passion and Warfare. We all remember that one. It also features direct quotes from the man himself, which provided his personal perspective on Particularly pertinent milestones in Vi's early career, including recording his landmark 1990 instrumental track, For the Love of God. A full transcript of Steve Vi, his first 30 years, has been released 
alongside the film, which compiles archive footage and audio material to tell live story. Other key milestones that follow include attending Berkeley College of Music in the fall of 1978, connecting with Frank Zappa after he spotted his number in a stolen Rolodex, and joining Zappa's band by the age of 20. And just as an aside, if you haven't checked out some of the uh, live performances from Frank Zappa, um, you're missing out. You need to check out some of that stuff. He's played with, obviously, some amazing guitar players over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like uh, Steve's time with uh, Frank Zappa, obviously, was very influential on the guy and um, shows a lot in his playing. The article continues... Fast forward a few years, and Vi had recorded his uh, Zappa-inspired debut album, Flexible, establishing his own record label, Akashic Records, and cemented himself as one of the most talented guitarists of his generation. A particular highlight from Steve Vai, his first 30 years, occurs when it discusses the making of Passion and Warfare, in particular for the love of God, which was composed as Vi was in the midst of a 10-day fast. At the time, it also had been two weeks since he had touched a guitar. I was trying to push myself to the limit, Vi reflected. When it came time to record for the love of God, my fingers were totally gone. I needed to be in that state of mind to record the song, and I was in absolute pain because of my fingers. When I was done, I said, that's it, he added. That's the best I can do. Concluding with the release of Passion and Warfare, the documentary explains that Vi decided against touring his sophomore record, which he dubs Jimi Hendrix Meets Jesus Christ at a party with Ben-Hur through for Mel Blanc, owing to the fact he wasn't comfortable as a frontman at the time. As you might have gathered, the documentary is filled with facts and anecdotes and promises to surprise even the most ardent Vi fans with stories and tidbits they might not have known. You can watch the full documentary for free on YouTube or visit the tape archives for the transcript. Be sure to check out my website, electricguitarlives.com. Uh, I'll have a link to the documentary for those interested. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Making Music has been the original home of Tone since 1973. And for nearly 50 years, they've been committed to meeting the needs of their customers. Bacon Music offers a hand-picked selection of premium boutique and custom gear. Their Northfield, Illinois showroom is open and comfortable with private, soundproof demonstration rooms for a pleasant shopping environment, while their website is regularly updated with an incredible array of custom electric guitars, tube amplifiers, and effects pedals. Knowledgeable and courteous sales professionals are always available to help make sure the gear you want is the best choice to suit your needs. Whether you're looking to pick up a new hobby, push sonic boundaries, or simply tweak your tone, Making Music is the place. For more information, please visit makingmusic.com. Hey, in other news, Jackson Guitars has debuted the first ever Made in Corona guitars with radically revamped American Series Soloist SL3. 
It's another one from GuitarWorld.com. Engineered for speed, the reimagined Axe is dubbed a breakthrough in high-performance guitars. Jackson has introduced an all-new version of its Soloist SL3 electric guitar, the American Series Soloist SL3, which ushers in the brand's first range of guitars to be made entirely in Fender's California factory. The arrival of the new American Series is likened to a long-awaited homecoming and is set to offer instruments built for speed, precision, and power, taking the best of the best from Jackson design history to create an elite tool for the modern player. Up first is the reinvented American Series Soloist SL3, said to be radically engineered for speed. The latest iteration of the SL3 design is the first to be wholly Corona-made and joins its pre-existing Japanese-made Pro Series predecessors. The American Soloist SL3 is available in a quartet of colorways, gloss black, platinum pearl, Rivera blue, and satin slime green, and at first glance seems to bear a number of similarities to the Pro Series version. There are, however, a few key differences. The American Series version sports an alder body, as opposed to the basswood or poplar alternatives on current Soloist SL3s, and a graphite reinforced three-piece maple neck, said to be insusceptible to bending and warping. Ah, that's a bold claim. With speed clearly on the agenda, Jackson has kept the through-neck construction and speed neck profile, which are paired with a 12-inch to 16-inch compound-rolled ebony fretboard in an effort to provide the ultimate and seamless fretboard navigation. The article continues, The result is a speed machine that is said to be the fastest guitar in Jackson's portfolio, and one that can cater to a new generation of diverse heavy metal players. Jackson's latest Soloist SL3 model also introduces Lumenlay side dots, promising optimum visibility on darkened stages, though maintains its distinct heritage by opting for the shark fin inlays in the Concord six-a-side headstock. Kiesel guitars certainly started a trend there with the Lumenlay side dots. Uh, I think for anyone that knows out there, we can all agree on that. Other notable appointments include the Floyd Rose 1500 Tremolo in the HSS configuration, which comprises Seymour Duncan's JB TB4 Bridge Humbucker, Custom Flat Strat SSL6 RWRP Middle Age Single Coil, and Custom Flat Strat SSL6 Neck Pickup. These are controlled by the classically streamlined Soloist control layout featuring a five-way pickup selector and a master volume and tone controls. Of Jackson's latest lineup, Fender CEO Andy Mooney commented, I've been a metal fan since I could buy records. My first two were Black Knight by Deep Purple and Paranoid by Black Sabbath. I love metal as it's home to so many virtuoso players whose fans want to emulate them the way I emulated Richie Blackmore. Jackson guitars are built to play fast and loud, he continued. We want to ensure this generation of heavy musicians have the tools they need to inspire the diverse audiences who love them. 
We've gone to great lengths to make the American Series Soloist SL3 the guitar that defines today's ever-evolving metal sound. And we've made sure they are fast, fast, fast. Fender's Executive Vice President of Product, Justin Norvell, echoed, Jackson has a DNA that is unmatched in the heavy music space, bringing Jackson's craftsmanship back to its Southern California roots has been a labor of love for all of us. He continued, The enduring passion for metal enables us to do so. Building this guitar in the Corona factory opened up incredible new design possibilities. The neck is unmatched, each pickup absolutely screams, and there isn't a single detail about this guitar that wouldn't make any shredder proud. To help launch the American Series Soloist SL3, Anthrax's Scott Ian offered, My first experience with Jackson was at Sam Ash in New York City in 1982. I was immediately hypnotized by the sheer awesomeness of the guitars and have been playing them ever since. Jackson guitars are the perfect tool for the job I do, and the American Series Soloist SL3 has me playing better than ever. I'm a big Anthrax fan, and uh, I know Scott's always played Jackson's, which is great because, uh, man, that dude knows how to rock it out there. Uh, there's a lot of people that love Jackson guitars, so uh, it's definitely cool. The article goes on. Accompanying the release of the new Soloist SL3 is a short documentary titled Origins of Speed, which stars Shredder's Ian, Misha Mansour, and Alyssa Day, as well as master builders Mike Shannon, uh, Luis Salgado, and Adam Arig to celebrate Jackson's new Corona production line. In terms of price, the black, blue, and white models will cost around $25.99, while the green version will weigh in at $24.99. To find out more, head over to jacksonguitars.com. For more information about this article, too, uh, be sure to visit guitarworld.com. Certainly, you guys can go look up this news yourself. These days, however, people seem to be, uh, especially on social media, just reading the titles and commenting on that versus actually reading the article. So my hope is that you, the listener, um, put this podcast on while you're heading into work in the morning, kind of like morning radio. That's kind of my direction and aim. Some news from guitar.com. The first Gibson garage opened on 9 June last year in Nashville, Tennessee. A new job listing by Gibson suggests that guitar makers, the guitar makers, are preparing to open their second Gibson garage store, this time in the United Kingdom. A new listing seeking a retail general manager was posted by Gibson Brands on job-seeking site Glassdoor, with the details specifying that the Gibson garage will be located somewhere in central London. While no other specifics on the Gibson garage itself were mentioned in the listing, it does specify that the candidate will have to keep the space engaging during both store hours as well as after hours and manage the space during crowded live performance events. Gibson has not officially announced the opening of a Gibson garage in London at the time of writing this particular article. The first Gibson Garage was opened on June 9th last year in the historic musical city of Nashville, Tennessee. The 8,000-square-foot flagship store features a range of Gibson Epiphone and Kramer guitars, Mesa Boogie amplifiers, 
and KRK studio equipment and is equipped with interactive installations as well as a stage for performances. The Gibson Garage also includes a custom shop with the world's first made-to-measure bar. Gibson also hosted a virtual concert titled The Gibson Live, a celebration of artists to benefit Gibson Gives. To celebrate the launch of the Gibson Garage, which featured Warren Haynes, Joe Bonamassa, Marcus King, Orianti, Emily Wolf, Jared James, Nichols, and more. The concert also benefited the charitable arm of Gibson by donating 100% of its proceeds to Music Cares and Save the Music. In other recent Gibson news, according to the article, the guitar maker's extremely limited Noel Gallagher ES355 is already being resold by scalpers for 5,000 pounds over its original price. Only 200 of the signature models were made, now entirely out of stock. They are originally being sold at $9,999 on the official Gibson website. That's pretty spendy. I think it's safe to say that Gibson is definitely, um, you know, in have been in and are in the realm of ultra high-end boutique guitars, obviously, with their lineup. Um, having their Gibson garage in various locations is not unlike the Apple Store, in my opinion. Uh, I think it's cool and gives uh, people an opportunity to go in and, and get jazzed about this kind of stuff and generate some buzz on the ground level. Be sure to check out guitar.com for this article and, and more like it. Uh, and uh, visit uh, gibson.com online to um, um, get more in-depth detail about their Gibson Garage initiative. And now another word from our sponsor, Making Music. Attention serious collectors and Eric Clapton enthusiasts. Making Music is happy to present this curated selection of gear, which was previously owned and used by none other than Slowhand himself, Eric Clapton. Various items are featured as part of this Eric Clapton collection, including a custom ES-335 electric guitar presented to Eric by Gibson for his 2001 tour, two stage use 412 Marshall speaker cabs stenciled Derek and the Dominoes, one Jaguar limited edition Marshall Bluesbreaker combo amp presented to Eric by Jim Marshall himself, and a stage use Music Man HD-150 reverb head and 212 cab with Doug Brothers Roadcase. If you're an avid Clapton collector or simply an enthusiast of rare vintage collectible guitars and amps, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to obtain your own personal Eric Clapton rig. Just imagine this killer selection of gear all set up in your man cave or jam room. Think of all the stages and players this iconic gear has seen. When I close my eyes, I can imagine myself there, relishing the sounds and smells of rock and roll. For more about the Eric Clapton guitar and amp collection, please visit makingmusic.com forward slash Clapton. That was makingmusic.com forward slash Clapton. So let's talk about lawsuit guitars. I came across a fantastic article, so I'm not going to attempt to um, 
rephrase the history of it. Um, I'm just going to uh, cite this article from jazzguitar.be or Jazz Guitar Online. It's a great article. If you get a chance, be sure to visit the website and this particular article and look it up yourself. I'll also include a link to it on electricguitarlives.com. Let me just give a little history and background of Japanese lawsuit guitars. In the late 1970s, there was a general dip in the quality of the production ethic of most mainstream American guitar companies. Household names such as Fender and Gibson guitars were not cranking out the quality workmanship which they were known for in the past. This led to the emergence of copy guitars from Asia which used arguably better parts and craftsmanship. The company that started importing these quality copy guitars was Elger Guitars. The founder of Elger Guitars, Harry Rosenblum, was the first American to import Japanese-made guitars. He imported guitars from the Hoshinagaki fam- company excuse me, yeah, and family, who made guitars under the brand name Ibanez. In 1971, Hoshino bought Elger Guitars, which became Hoshino USA. Their logos and production styles were similar enough to where American guitar companies felt that the consumer was being confused into buying guitars which they believed were from them. A lawsuit between the parent corporation behind Gibson Guitars and Ibanez Japan Elger Guitars led to a precedent that stunted the production of these low-cost, high-quality guitars. The actual lawsuit had place in 1977 and was excuse me, it was between the Norland Corporation, Gibson's parent company, and Hoshino USA. Gibson accused Ibanez of copying their headstock design. The issue was settled out of court. In 1978, Ibanez abandoned the idea of copying popular American guitar models and started manufacturing guitars from their own designs. Later on, a lot of these copy guitar companies were shut down Gibson and Fender went on to take advantage of the production capacities by purchasing Japanese factories to make their own lower-cost copies. There were other lawsuits as well. Greco and Tokai, for example, were sued because their logos looked like those of Gibson or Fender. This might trick buyers into thinking they were buying the real deal. Although there were many guitar companies making these copy guitars, Ibanez was the only company that actually got sued by Gibson. The article goes on to detail some of the brands that were part of the, you know, best-known lawsuit guitar companies. First up is Tokai. Tokai is known for their Gibson Les Paul replicas called Les Paul Reborn and the Love Rock, which are perfect copies of the 1958 vintage Les Pauls. They also made Martin acoustic replicas. Uh, Tokai is still making guitars today. Next up is Greco. Greco made Fender, Gibson, Rickenbacker, Gretsch, and other replicas. Their logo looks a lot like Gibson's logo. Fernandez, which some of you may know, I always think of the sustainer. Fernandez is known for its Fender replicas. They're still making guitars today. And Bernie. Bernie is the same company as Fernandez, but instead of Fenders, Bernie made Gibson replicas. Bernie guitars are considered to be the best Gibson copies. Bernie lawsuit guitars are extremely difficult to find and very expensive. They are hard to distinguish from Korean Bernie models as well. 
Ernie is still active today. Their Les Paul model is called Supergrade, and the words were modeled to look like Les Paul. It actually looks like Looper Grade, if you check out the picture or do some research online. Other lawsuit guitar companies include Ibanez, Takamini, Matsumoku, Area, Westone, and Electra. The article goes on. In the past, these original copy guitars from Asia were much more difficult to find. You would have to keep a close eye on the different collectors in order to find Japanese lawsuit guitars for sale. This included days spent scouring pawn shops or traveling to different cities. The online world has made securing sophisticated collector's items like these a lot easier and can be fun and addicting looking for vintage guitars on eBay. I can testify to that. That's something that, you know, I like doing as well. Of course, you know, you know how it is with guitars, right? You know, the fun is in the hunt. When shopping for lawsuit guitars on eBay or other marketplaces, it's important that you carefully examine all of the information presented in the auction. Here are some tips and things to look out for when buying lawsuit guitars. Take a close look at the logos and headstock configuration. Lawsuit guitars have a headstock that is known as an open book headstock, copied from Gibson. After the lawsuit, copy guitar manufacturers had to change your headstock design. A true lawsuit guitar should have the design and logo style of a more expensive brand from the same era. For example, a Takamini lawsuit guitar might have a logo which is easily confusable for a Martin Acoustic. Does the logo look like the Gibson or Fender logo? Lawsuit guitars are made in Japan, not in Korea or anywhere else. Of course, not all Japanese vintage guitars are lawsuit guitars. Most Lotus guitars are not lawsuit guitars. Most Lyle guitars are lawsuit guitars. Most Ibanez lawsuit guitars don't have a serial number. Some of the more recent ones do, though. The more actual photographs and specs the eBay seller is willing to demonstrate, the better. And, that, and this isn't, you know, just limited to eBay. You know, you can see these things on Reverb as well. It might be a good idea to buy a vintage guitar price guide. There's a good one published by Vintage Guitar Magazine. Knowing the market value of vintage guitars can help you a lot. It is important to investigate the specific guitar in question to make sure that it is truly authentic. Lawsuit guitars for sale on eBay or Reverb will be easily verifiable through research on various guitar forums. You don't want to buy a guitar without doing your homework. An authentic Japanese lawsuit guitar will have a lot of verifiable feedback on the web. Now, of course, you know, in recent days, uh, you know, Gibson's been big about playing authentic. And certainly, if you find the right dealer out there, you can get the, you know, Gibson guitar, a real one, uh, the guitar of your dreams, um, if you just shop around and find a good dealer. I recommend that you do that. However, it must be noted that a lot of these factories back during that time, uh, not, unlike the automobile industry, were really making some incredible quality guitars. One of my favorite brands from that time period is uh, Aria or Araya, who are still making guitars today. And that leads us into our next segment. I have an Araya Cardinal and an Araya RS guitar. 
uh, for being over 40 years old each. Uh, still to this day, they're both great playing guitars. My Cardinal 250, I believe. Um, it's a tone machine. It's it's like um, an SG on steroids. It's got so many tone options and um, really neat stuff. And I, I have to give the Japanese credit, specifically the Araya brand credit for the quality of stuff that they were producing at the time. It's really, really, really good. What's interesting as a consumer is uh, to see the uh, the prices rise and fall and a lot of this old vintage Japanese stuff. Um, it's interesting to see uh, uh, what people are getting jazzed about or, or you know or what they're putting up for sale. And trust me, on eBay, eBay and Reverb, uh, you can really find some amazing stuff depending on what you know tickles your fancy. Now, I wanted to bring up a factory of note that a lot of people are using as a selling point on their, you know, their old, um, you know, lawsuit style guitars. And then post-lawsuit stuff that a lot of these people were producing. Um, And the factory that I'm going to talk about is uh, Matsumoku Industrial. Matsumoku Industrial was a Japanese manufacturing company based in Matsumoto, Nagano between 1951 and 1987. Established in 1951 as a woodworking and cabinetry firm, Matsumoku is remembered as a manufacturer of guitars and bass guitars, including some Epiphone and Araya guitars. There is an occasional confusion between Matsumoku and Matsumoto, Matsumoto is a town of Japan's Nagano Prefecture where Fujigen, Gaki, Goto, and other musical instrument companies have manufacturing plants. Matsumoto Musical Instrument Manufacturers Association is also the name of a musical instrument manufacturing cooperative headed by Goto. In 1951, Matsumoku was founded as Matsumoto Moko. Uh, Matsumoto Woodworking Company by Mr. Tsukada in Matsumoto, Nagano, Japan. It was a family-owned woodworking business that specialized in building cabinets. Shortly after World War II, the Singer Corporation had established a Japanese subsidiary, Singer Sewing Machine Company Japan, and set up production, fil- excuse me, production facilities in Nagoya. Singer contracted Matsumoku Industrial, to build its sewing machine cabinets, and in 1951, Matsumoku became a partially owned subsidiary of Singer Japan. Matsumoku also branched out into building cabinets for manufacturers of televisions and hi-fi amps. In the 1960s, uh, Matsumoku began to look into other woodworking markets where several subcontracts of the Singer Corporation were moved to the Philippines. They were basically left with a bunch of skilled craftsmen, and uh, they shifted their focus. They pivoted over to uh, start making musical instruments. Uh, These weren't regular craftsmen. These were incredibly gifted craftsmen, and the quality of their stuff at that time uh, was amazing. Uh, By the early 1970s, Matsumoku had begun using CNC, mills, routers, and lathes, one of the first guitar makers to do so, I might note. Um, this created a significant economy of scale allowing the company to rely upon factory automation rather than skilled labor for rough shaping of components and basic assembly tasks. 
This is still in practice today. Even so, 60% of the construction process was still done by hand, including planning, fretting, joining, and assembly. This machine-cut yet hand-worked process offered improved profit margins at lower unit costs and yielded high-quality instruments with unique character. Matsumoku produced guitars or parts guitars for Vox, Skyatone, uh, Fujigen Gaki, Kanda Shokai, Greco, Hoshina Gaki, Ibanez, and Nippon Gaki, Yamaha. Hondo Professional Series, USA Guitar Company, Araya and Norland, parent company of Gibson. American-owned Unicord contracted Matsumoku to build most of its Univox and Westbury guitars. St. Louis Music imported Matsumoku-built electric guitars. J.C. Penney sold Matsumoku-built Skylark guitars through its catalog division. Matsumoku built many early Greco guitars, as well as Memphis, Vantage, Westbury, Westminster, C.G. Winter, Cutler, Lyle, and Fell. Washburn Guitars contracted with Matsumoku to build some of its electric guitars and basses from 1979 through 1984. Though the names above reflect Matsumoku's involvement, many of the names were later sold to other companies which made guitars that were completely different in quality and sound. I want to add that in the early days uh, of their production, when they were building stuff for Washburn, uh, they had an entire series. It was really, really killer quality. Uh, if you go uh, searching for it, you know, look up Washburn Eagle, Washburn Hawk. Um, great guitars. I owned one of them at one time. Once the Araya brand um, um, kind of came onto the scene and uh, Matsumoku was, was creating the guitars, I felt they really started innovating with some of the stuff that they were doing, uh, like the, the Thor series. Uh, the Cardinal series is, like I said, the guitar that one of the guitars that I own. Uh, their RS series, which is kind of like a uh, a beginner Strat style guitar, um, you know, very you know Strat like. I mean, it's basically a Strat. It's got a different design to it. Um, and again, after forty something years, I plug these things in. They have some kinks and quirks. But you cannot deny the build quality on these things. And if you shop around, become savvy enough about what it is that you're looking for and and uh, what you're willing to pay, uh, you can find some real gems on Reverb or eBay. This is also interesting. Gibson decided to move Epiphone production to Japan in the early 1970s and chose Araya as its contractor. As a subcontractor to Araya, Matsumoku manufactured most electric Epiphones made in Japan from 1970 through 1986. A few solid-body electrics were made by other Japanese manufacturers, and at least one model was made in Taiwan. Models include the solid-body ET series, the Crestwood, the SC series, Scroll, and the Model 1140, the Flying V, as well as Epiphone's arch-top electric guitars, the 5102. 2T, EA-250, Sheridan, Riviera, Casino, and Emperor. Early Matsumoku-made Epiphone arch tops and hollow body bases had four-point bolt-on necks. As production costs of bolt-on neck guitars were less, some guitars regarded them as inferior instruments. I can speak to that. They're not as good. However, it was not the neck construction that was inferior. Uh, rather, it was a lack of reinforcement in the neck pocket area, which could enable that area to act like a hinge, 
causing future problems with high action due to tension on the body's neck pocket from the strings. Collectors of Matsumoku guitars from this period have solved this problem by fabricating and installing permanent custom neck shims. Set neck archtop guitars followed late in 1975. Specifications on the Epiphone archtops changed throughout the Matsumoku era. Many Matsumoku built guitars, including Epiphone archtops, utilized a three-piece maple neck with the center sections grain-oriented 90 degrees from the sidewood. This created a very strong neck, not prone to splitting or warping. An often used variation of this is the five-piece neck with two thin trim strips of walnut or ebony separating the three sections. Matsumoku made many neck-through-body, solid-body electric guitars and basses, most with five-piece necks. Matsumoku often utilized the Nishin Ampa company, who owns the Maxon FX brand, which is absolutely killer, by the way, as a subcontractor for its pickups. Some Maxon pickups have Maxon's M logo stamped on the back. For me, anyways, as a fan of this type of stuff, uh, the Maxon pickups are, are um, for, uh, I always found were very mid-rangey, and um, I often think of the Tube Screamer tone. The name Matsumoko appeared on the neck plate, neck bolt plate, excuse me, of some of the guitars they built. Early Grecos and some 1980s Araya Pro 2s have Matsumoku on the neck bolt plate. Other neck plates were blank or simply had the word Japan stamped on them. Many Matsumoku set neck guitars and basses have the inspector's name stamp stamped inside the neck pickup cavity. Gibson restructured after being sold by Norland began to move its Epiphone production to other Japanese manufacturers and to Korea. By 1986, the home sewing machine market was in heavy decline and Singer was nearly bankrupt. Matsumoku could not afford to buy itself out of Singer and in 1907, excuse me, 1987 closed down. After Matsumoku ceased operations, Araya continued production of Araya Pro 2 guitars and basses through its own factories and other manufacturers. Some top line and special edition guitars are still manufactured in Japan However, most Arai guitars are now produced in Korea and China. Information about Matsumoku's contribution to guitar making is better known now due to, in large part, to the internet. Matsumoku's products enjoy a strong following among devoted enthusiasts. I am one of those enthusiasts. They made great stuff. Uh, just, you know, some notable players who played Matsumoku guitars... Earl Hooker uh, played Univox. Kurt Cobain played Univox. He played Araya. He played Epiphone. Uh, the Washburn Force, which is a really monstrous Strat guitar, Super Strat. Uh, John Taylor, Duran Duran. Cliff Burton of Metallica, if you remember him, banging on stage with his Araya Pro 2 bass, the black and gold bass. Elvin Bishop. Neil Schoen uh, played the Araya Pro 2 PE series for a time. Of course, Neil plays every kind of guitar, man. That guy's got a different guitar every day. I follow him on Twitter, and he's always jamming out. Uh, Noel Gallagher and Paul Bonehead Arthurs of Oasis played Matsumoku-manufactured Epiphone Rivieras in the mid-1990s. Uh, Dave Brock of Hawkwind. Wayne Hussey of The Mission. Tim Smith of Cardiacs. 
uh, James Eha of the Smashing Pumpkins in a Perfect Circle, and uh, Robert Smith of The Cure played um, uh, an Epiphone 510 2T and an EA250. So, you know, if you're out and about and, uh, you know, you're visiting pawn shops trying to look for that next holy grail of a guitar, uh, be on the lookout for some of the stuff that I mentioned in the podcast today. I think you'll dig it um, and give it a try. Um, You know, they're surprisingly great instruments. Uh, The two that I have have had countless odors and have been beat to hell. And that's kind of the appeal about them uh, is that they're so well built Uh, You could drop them on the ground and pick them up and keep playing them like a Fender Stratocaster. I'm not saying they're indestructible. I'm just saying that they're very well made and uh, they're worth the money. You know, it's good to have in the collection. And if you're a guitar player, I think you might dig it. So uh, in today's Artist Spotlight feature, we're going to talk about Denny Diaz. Denny Diaz of Steely Dan. As the title suggests in this particular podcast... I feel that you should at least question, is this the greatest guitar solo ever recorded? Now, guitar, in quotes. Really, it's a sitar solo that he does for the song uh, Do It Again on 1972's Can't Buy a Thrill by Steely Dan. Lately, uh, I've been uh, listening to a lot of Steely Dan. Um, I'm really intrigued uh, by their songwriting and uh, their ability to work with harmony, uh, their chord structure, um, and just the overall um, uh, professional musicianship level in their music. Uh, These guys were incredibly anal about the recording process. Um, They tried a thousand different things out to get the perfect thing recorded uh, for the music that we all know and enjoy today and is still celebrated. In fact, I just recently went to see uh, Steely Dan, of course, without uh, Walter Becker, and it was a very enjoyable show. But let's talk about Denny a little bit. Uh, Denny was working with his own band out of his basement in Hicksville, New York, when he placed an ad in the uh, Village Voice in the summer of 1970. The ad read, Looking for keyboardist and bassist. Must have jazz chops. Assholes need not apply. Donald Fagan and Walter Becker responded to that advertisement. They joined his band and immediately began playing their own material. Diaz fired the rest of the band, and the three of them moved to California, adding drummer Jim Hodder, guitarist Jeff Skunk Baxter, and vocalist David Palmer, before recording for ABC Dunhill Records as Steely Dan. Diaz recorded as a permanent member of the band on 1972's Can't Buy a Thrill with an electric sitar solo on the song Do It Again, on 1973's Countdown to Ecstasy, and also on 1974's Pretzel Logic. Following a tour promoting Pretzel Logic, Becker and Fagan decided to break the band up and use session musicians on future albums. Though no longer a member of the band, Diaz continued to work with them as a session guitarist, appearing on 1975's Katie Lied, 1976's The Royal Scam, and 1977's Aja. In 1991, he joined Toto on their summer festival tour. He also recorded with Wayne Shorter, Wilfredo Vargas, and Pete Chrisley. Uh, now I know fans of Denny 
uh, including myself, and uh, revered guitarists like Scott Henderson are huge fans uh, of his work and uh, would go on to say even today um, that, you know, he recorded some of the best guitar solos ever. For me as a fan of Denny's, uh, I would say, you know, do yourself a favor and listen to the uh, the work uh, that I cited there um, that he has recorded. And you'll notice that it was an integral part of the songs that he was on. And you really can't change those things. If you learn how to play these solos and play them live, um, there is much a part of of the song as the general structure of the song is. Um, and so you really can't deviate from them too much because they're basically perfection, at least in my opinion. I'll leave a link um, to um, uh, the song and uh, so you can listen to his sitar solo on Do It Again. I encourage you to visit electricguitarlives.com and uh, check out uh, his performance there, and also check out uh, the rest of uh, the work from Steely Dan, and uh, you know maybe take a break or departure from other stuff that you're listening to, and kind of broaden your horizons. You'll find that the music is uh, is uh, quite deep and extremely enjoyable. Hey, I wanted to um, say thank you again for for joining me today on the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed the time and maybe learned something. Um, next week, uh, you'll want to tune in as I'll be doing a segment about uh, famed guitarist um, George Lynch of Dokken and Lynch Mob. And you never know. Hopefully soon I'll, I'll have uh, George come on the show and we'll do an interview. But uh, I highly uh, recommend that you tune in next week for that specific show. Uh, in terms of gear, we're going to be talking about the ESP Guitar Company. ESP, at least in my eyes, is, you know, they're really kicking butt across the board from their product line to their marketing uh, to the artists that they have on staff. Um, they've been backing George for years, and the offerings put out by ESP Limited and also by the ESP Custom Shop, uh, the stuff that they produce... Man, I'm telling you, it's killer. Um, I really can't argue with the quality of this stuff. So I'll, I'll be doing a deep dive um, on ESP next week. Uh, and again, we're going to be talking about uh, George Lynch. So come and uh, in, in listen to that show and maybe you'll learn something and uh, maybe we'll do some guitar playing too. So have a great weekend and thanks again for tuning in to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. Thanks for listening to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with P. Williams, your weekly hang for all things guitar-related and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode. And remember, have fun. See you next time. For more about this podcast and future episodes, be sure to visit electricguitarlives.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>